Welcome, my friends. Welcome, one and all, to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And once again, I'm coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan, where it is already Thursday afternoon, almost afternoon, 11 a.m. here anyway. So wherever you are in the world listening to my voice right now, I want to thank you all once again for tuning in and remind you all once again that this radio broadcast is also available as a video podcast from CorbettReport.com, and the video of each episode goes up a few hours after each episode airs, so uh, stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for that. And tonight we have a guest lined up for you on everyone's favorite topic, and that is money. Tonight we're going to be talking about monetary policy, and we're going to be talking to Carrie Lutz of the Financial Survival Network at FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com. And for those of you who haven't visited the Financial Survival Network yet, I suggest you do so at least to check out some of the stories that they've got covered on their front page right now including a story from Zero Hedge, uh, There's Something Big Headed Straight for Us, which is uh, a, a very apt title for, I think, any story on the political, economic, or social scenes uh, these days, unfortunately. Uh, getting a second passport has never been easier. Uh, that's an interesting little story right there. Uh, Brodsky on gold, credit money, and real return investing. Uh, Spain 10-year bond yields approach 7%. Problems continue in Sicily. Compton, California is the next city to file for bankruptcy protection. Ron Paul warns Bernanke the financial crisis is far from over. And uh, unfortunately, that is just the uh, the bleeding obvious. But unfortunately, it does need to be stated time and time again for those out there who want to state otherwise. Uh, gold producers in the catbird seat by uh, the, from the Gold Report. Peter Schiff, this is my single greatest fear. Um, IMF Eurozone in critical danger. ECB should launch QE. Lots and lots and lots of financial stories coming out there on a daily basis. So it is a good source of information on a wide range of subjects. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Kerry Lutz, allow me to read a little bit of his biography from the About page. It says, Kerry Lutz has been a student of Austrian economics since 1977. While attending Pace University, he stumbled upon an extensive cache of Austrian economic literature in a dark, musty, abandoned section of the school's library. After graduating from the New York Law School, he became an attorney and lifelong serial entrepreneur. His diverse career has included running a legal printing company, practicing commercial law and litigation, and founding a successful distressed asset investment company. It goes on from there. I'll let you go to FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com to read that for yourself and uh, find out a little bit more about Kerry and the Financial Survival Network in general. But, uh, but to, yes, I want to start talking about economics today and uh, continue examining the situation that we've arrived, our, we've arrived in these days and, uh, and what an unfortunate situation it is in oh so many respects. And I think that was drawn out quite fruitfully in an interview that Carrie Lutz did recently with The Daily Bell at thedailybell.com. So I'll direct you there. I'll put the link in the show notes for tonight's episode so you can go there from corporatereport.com. And uh, and read through this uh, this interview where they're talking to Kerry about uh, about Austrian economics, but also about some of his concerns and uh, how we arrived at the place that we're in. So let me just read a little bit of that. For example, the Daily Bell asked, "What's your major concern?" And Kerry replied that the economic collapse leads to widespread social unrest and eventual anarchy. Anarchy was one of the biggest fears of the founding fathers, and we're always just a generation away from losing our freedom, as has been seen many times in the past. To which the Daily Bell asks, how did we get into the fix we're in? And Kerry replies, there were many things that brought us here, but to me, the three most key, at least in the U.S., were Prohibition, the 16th Amendment, i.e. income tax, and the Federal Reserve Act. 
Prohibition was the beginning of the nanny state and so many efforts by government to get us to do the right thing because, of course, government knows what's better for us than we do. Just look at Mayor Michael Nanny Bloomberg and his efforts to outlaw tobacco, trans fats, and double gulp drinks in New York City, the veritable bastion of state-sponsored nannyism. Well, we are, of course, uh, mortally opposed to state-sponsored nannyism here, so it should be an interesting conversation, and we're hoping to get Kerry on the line, and we will be bringing him to you after these messages, so stay tuned right there. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio for this Wednesday night edition of the broadcast. And, of course, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're honored to have on the line Carrie Lutz from the Financial Survival Network. Once again, that's FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com. So it's uh, great to have him here, and let's bring him straight into the conversation. Carrie, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Hey, well, thank you for having me, James. It's really an honor. Well, it's good to have you here and to talk about some of the most important issues that I think we can be talking about, which is everyone's economic and financial survival, of course, the Financial Survival Network. So let's uh, let's start talking about yourself. This is your first time on the program. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to found the Financial Survival Network. Sure thing. Well, I'm a serial entrepreneur, like third or fourth generation entrepreneur, also a reformed attorney. I always said if I was any good at being an attorney, I wouldn't still be practicing. And finally, I got to realize that dream. And, you know, the crash hit, I saw it coming in 2006, 2007, because to me, Vegas would be the epicenter of it. When I saw the real estate market crumbling there and then the stock market getting hit, I knew that I didn't want to be doing what I was doing anymore, which was basically buying and selling distressed assets. And I just saw that we would have massive debt repudiation and that the credit markets would would sink. So I said I'd like to try to help people to get through this because nobody studies the Great Depression or the Great Depressions of the past anymore. They don't teach it in school. And nobody in the United States or throughout most of the world was prepared for what's happening, for what happened then and what's happening now. Unfortunately not, and I think you're exactly right that we have to understand that we're not in, um, well, it is a unique situation in some respects, but in other respects, I mean, we've gone through these types of crises before in human history, and we have to remember how people got through them and what brought them to those places. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that history. I mean, when we look back, of course, the Great Depression of the 30s comes to mind, but we can look even to Roman Republic and other uh, times in history where uh, there have been various types of monetary crises. Uh, What do you see as particularly important or instructive episodes in history for our current day and age? Well, when you have these crises, we're talking major monetary crises and arguably the end of the American empire, but we don't really need to go there to, to understand this. You always see debasement of the currency. That is first and foremost, promises get made There's not enough productive capacity in a country to fulfill them, whether we're talking Rome or Greece or the Byzantine Empire. You go back and you see it happened in Italy, in uh, in Venice, and it happens over and over again. Property rights erode, and then society breaks down and it reforms, and, and I believe that's what we're going through now. 
Well, I guess the uh, obvious question and the one that everyone wants to know is what is the next stage in this crisis and how, how, what time frame do you think that this is going to be unfolding on? And of course, none of us have a crystal ball, but of course, everyone's interested in, in how this is all going to unfold. Yeah, well, as they say with pundits, there's two things you want to do as a pundit. You either want to make a prediction or you want to give a time frame. You never want to do both together because you're always going to get tripped up. Now, I would say that uh, that the dollar's preeminence is probably being greatly diminished by the unlimited money printing, but it's happening all over. The interesting thing that's happening in the U.S., and it seems to be accelerating, is this whole energy production meme, which we, a couple of years ago we were we were producing 40-odd percent of the energy we consume in the United States. Now it's over 50. So we're kind of in a race where will the dollar die before we become, again, the preeminent energy producer in the world? If it holds out for a year or two, we might hit a state of equilibrium if there are major structural changes in the way the government spends money, the benefit structure for for uh, recipients, and if changes get made. But if something happens, it could be tomorrow for all we know. You go to the bank and your ATM card doesn't work. And then, you know what, the crisis hit tomorrow instead of two years from now or maybe being put off indefinitely by America's energy renaissance. Well, let's talk about that energy renaissance. Um, obviously, this is one of the key key issues going forward. It's it's always been a key issue, I think, for any empire. But of course, uh, going forward in the scramble for resources uh, all across the world, of course, uh, energy resources are, are right up there as the most important. So what is the uh, what is really driving this increase in, in local production, domestic production, and uh, what what's contributing to that? Well, let's talk about what isn't contributing to it first, and that is the government, because the government and these busybodies in all the different agencies have done everything they can to try to destroy the domestic energy industry in the U.S. in many ways. I mean, maybe not destroy, maybe that's the wrong word, but interfere, intervene. And yet, the amazing thing to me, James, is that in spite of all their efforts, this sector is flourishing and is going to become preeminent. And I wasn't really sure of it, but I'm seeing it now that we're producing over 50%, close to 55% of the country's energy needs. So it's technology. It is the fact that the U.S. was the most explored country in the world for energy. So they knew about all these resources, the shale gas, the shale oil, but not oil that's locked in shale rock, but rather reservoirs that they can get to through horizontal drilling. And they knew all about it. They were just waiting for the technology to to be there to exploit it. Now, some people say we're just trying to exploit the rest of the world's oil, drive their reserves down, and we always knew we were going to tap into it. I'm not buying that for the simple reason that the oil that's being tapped now the natural gas, the natural gas liquid, which is another market that virtually nobody except insiders in the industry know about, all of that is the result of a quiet revolution that took place over the last 15 or so years with people risking capital the old American way, 
risking having an idea for a better mousetrap, going there and making it work. And that's what's been happening here, in spite of all of the government's attempts to to somehow find the green panacea of energy that at the present time doesn't exist. Well, well, that to me is the overriding narrative that we've seen in the last several years, and, and of course, certainly during the Obama presidency, has been the uh, the drive for the green energy, and of course, all of the scandals that inevitably fall out of that. And we've seen the uh, the, the farce, really, that that wind the wind power industry has become and has always been from its inception, really. And uh, we look at things like Solyndra, so it just seems to be scandal after scandal, and unfortunately, that's what um, what seems to be coming out of it. But of course, the other side of that is the the people who are arguing that that government. Uh, intervention and in the government's drive to create this green energy industry, the green economy is is going to be the, the savior of humanity. So it seems to me there's a huge ideological battle being won. Uh, how do you see that ideological battle playing out? And do you think that, uh, that w- which side of that is winning at this moment? Well, let's go look at something real simple like ethanol. It has no business being mixed into gasoline. You get worse mileage from it. It takes food out of the international food market, raises prices, causes food riots on the other side of the world, and it's strictly there as a giveaway, a subsidy to big agribusiness. And I won't name names. We all know who they are. So this is what happens when the government picks winners and losers. And not only do they have to subsidize the producers to make it, but then they have to erect trade barriers so that we can't get cheaper ethanol from places like Brazil that make it out of uh, sugar cane, which probably are better off having less sugar in the world, according to these obesity, uh, anti-obesity types. But the point is, when the government intervenes and they pick winners and losers, they're not smart enough to know who the right winner should be. The market's much better at picking winners and losers based on efficiency rather than based on political connections, campaign contributions, and the whims of some pointy-headed bureaucrat locked in a cubicle in the middle of one of those three-block-long buildings in Washington, D.C., but, Kerry, we can't allow the corporations to, to run away with the world. It's uh, the 99% versus the 1%. And as we all know, the government is the only one that can keep that 1% constrained, right? Well, the 1% exists because of the government. Milton Friedman used to say, show me any monopoly that you can think of, and I'll show you a monopoly that got there because of the government. All of these fascist corporations, and there's thousands of them, I guess, around the world, they all got there because government granted them unfair advantage. They granted them franchises. They granted them special privileges not available to you or to me, James. And getting government out of there would quickly, quickly the inefficient producers would lose out. They'd go out of business. And part of this is theoretical, but part of it is true. A company like Solyndra would never have gone into business because the market, the free market, wouldn't have allowed it. Nobody would have loaned their money. The fact that they were in business in the first place, function of the government. And we'll look at a company like uh, General Electric. They've got buildings full of attorneys and accountants that figure out how they can avoid... 
And on that note, we're coming up against the break. So hold it right there. We're coming into a break, so we'll take a short uh, three-minute break. But in the meantime, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443, 1-800-313-9443. And you can join us on the air once again talking to Carrie Lutz of the Financial Survival Network, financialsurvivalnetwork.com. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. You are tuned into Corporate Report Radio here on republicbroadcasting.org. Tonight we're talking to Kerry Lutz of the Financial Survival Network. So tonight we're talking about various economic and financial matters and uh, and lots to talk about, obviously, in this collapsing economy. And, uh, and it is an economic crisis in every sense of the word. But as Kerry points out in that Daily Bell interview that I was referencing at the beginning of tonight's episode... Uh, unfortunately, economic concerns also always play into social concerns and the broader picture of uh, society at large. And uh, and really, when we face economic collapse, we are facing not just a, a financial problem, but but really the breakdown of social cohesion as we've known it uh, in our lifetime. So it it is the type of problem that that does start to f- spill over onto the streets in many different ways. So, Kerry, let's let's talk a little bit about that point. You you say that the uh, the prospect of social collapse and and anarchy uh, is is one of the concerns that you see playing out from this economic disaster. Perhaps you can elaborate on that. Well, you know, look at modern life today. You can't live without commerce, and if the trucks stop stop rolling down the highways, delivering goods, delivering food, delivering all the essentials that you and I need to to live modern existence, then we've got a big problem and social order, once the food is off the shelves in the supermarkets, you know, most people are 15 meals away from starvation. That's the most you could find in your home unless you're prepping, and I'm not don't get me wrong, James, I'm not advocating uh, ultra-prepping, but we saw it in so many places where natural disasters have hit, no food left in the supermarkets. So you never know where you, where you are, whether you could be subject to a natural disaster. So it's always a good idea to have a few weeks' worth of food on hand at least, as well as the essentials. I can't imagine why anyone wouldn't want that. I mean, you you refer to ultra-prepping, but what what does that even mean? How could you be too prepared for something? Well, you know, we... I, I'm kind of making a joke about that natural geo, National Geographic show, uh, Extreme Preppers, where they've got bunkers drilled, and they've got years of uh, food and air filters to keep out uh, the fallout dust and all that. There's a limit to what you can prepare for. Let's face it. We're limited by practicality. We're limited by our inability to really know what's going to happen in the future. But having a couple months supply of food on hand that you're drawing down on and constantly replacing just makes so much sense and yet james most people don't do it just like having some gold and silver in your possession should money became become uh, shall we say scarce or should paper money cease to exist or let's say you were a, a depositor at bni or rbs and they had a bank glitch and you had no funds and no family and no friends to go to, how would you survive for that 30 days that B&I has been closed or the two or three weeks that 
Royal Bank of Scotland and NatWest and Ulster Bank had their so-called glitch. You need to be prepared on a number of fronts for a number of different possible scenarios, understanding that you cannot prepare for every single one. Well, uh, that is the point. And I think even regardless of any uh, greater economic context of what we're living through, I think people should be prepared for any sort of eventuality like that because it could happen at any time. So absolutely, uh, I, I'm completely in agreement on that. But but let me uh, let me tease out some of the points. For example, in, in that Daily Bell interview, you used the term anarchy. Anarchy was one of the biggest fears of the Founding Fathers. And coming from someone who sees uh, who cannot see a problem, the answer to which should be government, I'm not sure uh, why anarchy is really used in a pejorative sense there. Well, the problem is we've seen in history limited government can work and be very effective. I can't think of anarchical societies that have been successful. Now, one could argue that as the country was developed, there really wasn't governmental structures in many of the new territories, and it leads to certain problems. So my personal belief is that there is a certain minimal amount of government that just makes life easier and more productive, but keeping that government limited that's the challenge and we have not learned the listen the lessons of history here in the united states or in any other country in the world about limited government so theoretically anarchy might be a workable system but i haven't ever really seen it happen other than in the frontiers and one could argue uh, in parts of alaska they're pretty close to anarchy because you know, one one Alaskan state trooper will be responsible for an area the size of New Jersey, and there's just no way it can be policed. Well, but, I would counter by saying that limited government is the uh, the thing that I've never actually seen. And uh, for the short periods of time where something corresponding to that has has happened or taken place, it's inevitably devolved into even worse tyranny. And uh, and we can look at the American example. Uh, whatever the uh, the founding fathers have set up, it has devolved to a point where it would be absolutely unrecognizable to them. So I think there's more of a, a philosophical point to be made about whether uh, limited government is itself a pipe dream that's sold as a way to step people along to towards greater tyranny. But on that note, we're heading up against another break, so let's leave it there. We'll be back in a few minutes here talking to Carrie Lutz of the Financial Survival Network. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program, friends. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com coming to you as always. And tonight we're talking to Carrie Lutz of the Financial Survival Network. And we're talking about matters economic and financial and how that plays into societal collapse as well. So once again, if you'd like to get in on the conversation, the phone lines are open at 1-800-313-9443. But uh, Carrie, let's turn to uh, what I think is really at the root of so much economic and uh, financial uh, crises that are that are happening right now that is often overlooked, and that's monetary policy, which, of course, in the United States context is completely uh, dominated by the Federal Reserve. So let's start talking about the state of monetary policy in America right now and where we would like to see things going. Well, my own personal view is that paper money, as as viewed with great distrust by the founders, uh, mainly Jefferson and Madison, and then going on later to uh, Andrew Jackson, is an unfair, exploitative 
and inherently corrupt system. And the way we have it now, fractional reserve banking, it just is a facilitator for all sorts of evils, over-promising things to the population to buy votes, allowing banks to, to pretty much take over the world, and pretty much turning the population into debt slaves, or as my friend uh, Jeff Berwick would say, milk cows, whose sole purpose is to produce for the state and for the banks to pay taxes and pay interest. Well, that's right. And and if you want to bring it back to the Founding Fathers' time, of course, one of the, the first arguments that was had in the uh, in the Washington administration was over the creation of a central bank, which Hamilton, of course, was arguing for against people like Jefferson and the creation of the uh, First Bank of the United States. And at the time, it was a big deal because this was a central bank. This was antithetical to what, uh, what the revolution seemed to be about. How did the Constitution even give Congress authority to do this? And uh, Ham- Hamilton's point was basically, oh, just read between the lines. The, yeah, the Constitution doesn't say it, but it's it's there somehow. Uh, let's talk about that concept of the central bank even and how that I- even remotely fits into the idea of a free market. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, James, because I'm writing a book right now. I'm just about done with it. It's had a few different names, uh, some of which aren't fit for a, a family show such as this. But pretty much going back there, researching, first you had the first, uh, the Bank of uh, North America, okay? That was really our first de facto central bank. Took place uh, during the war and was an attempt to try to stabilize the economy and finance the war efforts. And it was actually underwritten by the Dutch and the French because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We were fighting the English and they saw it as a real good opportunity to weaken the English Empire. Then we went to the uh, to the first bank, and that bank, interestingly enough, was forbidden from buying debt of the United States. And it was mainly in there as a mechanism to pay off the war debt of the Revolutionary War and there were there was a lot of issues whether certain states like Uh, New York had higher debt, Virginia had less debt, and nobody wanted to pay it, but it had to be paid off. And then that one lapsed, we had the second bank. And the second bank kind of went along until Jackson took notice, and then he crushed it. And then for 70 some odd years, we managed to function really well from 1936 to 1913 with no central bank. And that was through the Civil War. We had national banks, but they weren't central banks. They didn't issue currency. And the whole purpose of the central bank was to allow banks to leverage themselves to the max to maximize their profits. And I just want to go back to one thing. The word bankrupt, if you look at its definition, it means broken table. And it goes back to the Venetian moneylenders When they would bust out, when they would loan too much, and then people would lose faith, they'd get thrown out of the moneylender market, and their table would get broken. So bankruptcy, really the etymology of that word, goes back to banking. Banking is where bankruptcy originated in large measure, and that's what all banks are. As Murray Rothbard said, once they start, 
loaning money that they don't have once they start loaning money outside of what they actually have, their equity in the bank, their capital, and they start using the depositor's funds for that purpose, they're insolvent and they're subject to a bank run at any time. So the purpose of the Federal Reserve, first and foremost, act as lender of last resort to all these banks that are bankrupt anyway so that nobody loses their money, there's no loss of faith, and the banks go on. Unfortunately, the Great Depression, they forgot about that role. And once the once one bank goes bankrupt, then they're all in perilous shape. Uh, certainly are. And the, uh, perhaps the greatest irony is that uh, bankruptcy might uh, derive etymologically from the idea of banks going out of business. But uh, unfortunately, in this day and age, it's not the banks that go out of business. It's the, uh, the Main Street uh, institutions. So, uh, so it has come, unfortunately, full circle. And w- we're left in a state where un- I think that, the, uh, as you point out, all of this system is, is so dominated by the central bank that, uh, that didn't exist for, so, so for such a lengthy period of American history. There was no central bank for so much of that history that it's difficult for people to even realize that it's not it's not necessary and it's not even a, a helpful institution. And that's something that only in the last few years, and thanks to the the uh, the movement uh, of people behind, for example, Ron Paul, have, uh, have raised public awareness of the existence of the Federal Reserve, let alone getting people to question why it, uh, why it needs to exist. So I think there is some progress being made, and a lot of people are starting to question uh, what's happening here and why it's happening. Do you think that this is going to result in, in something that will eventually actually overthrow the system as it is now, or is this uh, pretty much hardwired into American politics at this point? That, again, calls for predicting the future. The one thing that's interesting is that the central banks kind of want to get together and form a world currency. I don't think there's any question about it. That's their goal. Through the IMF, whomever it might be, And this is really dangerous. It's kind of a last-ditch effort. But if I don't think they're going to be able to do it, or certainly it's not moving in that direction fast enough. The only thing that's worked over the centuries is hard assets, gold and silver. Nothing else has managed to keep its value. All fiat money systems die. So they can dream of this global currency and a global central bank, whether it's the IMF or the bank uh, for international settlements. But the fact is, whatever they come up with after this system fails, if it's paper-based and there's no metal component, people will not have faith in it. So they're going to have to go back to the tried and true. At least that's my opinion at some point. Well, well, for my take on that, I... I do understand that that paper monies are obviously always exploited by the people who get into the government and just print them like they're toilet paper and eventually make them into toilet paper. But uh, but and I understand that gold and silver keep their value inherently and and have for thousands of years. That's something that's inherently valuable. But to my mind, basing an economic system on that, I mean, to have it as an investment, I think, is a great idea. But to base an economic system on the vagaries of what can be mined out of the ground seems to me to put basically a big loaded gun to the head of the economy and uh, daring uh, someone to pull the trigger. And uh, I I could understand a, a a currency that's based on a basket of commodities so that there's no one big reliance on this one particular resource. But it just seems to me if you want to put all the eggs in the gold basket, that's A, 
a market that can be cornered and, and dominated by very few individuals. And B, it, it also, I mean, puts it, as I say, in the vagaries of what can be mined out of the ground, which is a pretty weird way to run a, an economic system. Yeah, but we ran it this way for thousands of years, and the only time the system has worked efficiently, go back to 1870 to 1913, is when gold was behind the currency. And go back to the Byzantine Empire, their unit of measure lasted for 800 years because it was gold. And, you know, when you kind of back it with a basket of commodities. Are you going to throw wheat in there and oil? Because if oil becomes money and its value as money is greater than its value as oil, then you're going to have such a surplus, you won't know what to do with it. So the basket of commodities is really a difficult measure. And the fact is that at the present time, the supply of gold around the world goes up roughly one and a half to one and three quarters percent per year. And it's never gone up much more than two, two and a half percent with a couple of minor exceptions when the Spaniards uh, came to the New World and took over South America. And um, I think there was a time during Roman times where silver, they, they developed uh, hydraulic mining techniques and the amount of silver greatly inflated but those were relatively short-lived as the money got spread out among the world. So having something that is relatively scarce, that can't be printed out of a printing press or a computer uh, workstation, and that's divisible, portable, all those things, combined with technology, so goldmoney.com, you've got literally gold at your fingertips or uh, Peter Schiff has created an offshore bank, of course, not Amer- available to Americans because they're banned. But you deposit your gold, you get an ATM card, you charge it, and you're spending your gold electronically. So something like that is probably where it's going to have to be unless they come up with something that's so transparent. I mean, ideally, people would agree what money was, and they would agree that they conduct their transaction in, in a certain way with a certain currency, but I don't know how practical something like that is at this point. This is something where government might actually need to be involved, not so much in calling the money or determining what the unit will be and whether it's paper or gold, but really just facilitating the establishment of that money that the that the consumers and the public and business want it to be i think i would have the the opposite take i think um why is it necessary for everyone to agree on money uh everyone can make that decision for themselves and that's something that government can can take their nose out of i'm i'm all for the freeing of uh competition when it comes to currency and allowing alternative currencies to to flourish and let the ones that uh, that can survive survive and let the ones that can't perish and that to me seems more like the free market solution yeah i like the idea of competing currencies and I think I think there's a lot of validity to it, um, and the problem is that there's a transition period that has to take place from being totally fiat-based to allowing the market to figure out what money will be, and that will require getting rid of legal tender laws and really getting the government out of it, which I think in the final analysis is the way to go, and it's important, but we have to get 
from where we are now to that point, and then you've got to get some bureaucrats to say we're going to give up our power over money, which is their main power over everything. And it's going to be a real fight, and I'm afraid the only way that we can get there is through a full-scale monetary collapse globally, and it will be a global collapse because nobody is backing their currency with anything other than promises. And just the mechanics of getting there, I mean, too much freedom at one time, maybe it could work, but there needs to be a framework. And I think that's where government has to come in in some way to establish it, whether we go into bitcoins. I don't know if you're familiar with that thing. Um, it's got to be something transparent that everybody knows, every currency unit that exists, that's created, destroyed, whatever, it needs to be that way to restore confidence because right now everybody is losing confidence in this. And the people who haven't lost confidence yet, they're going to wake up one day and it's not going to matter whether they have confidence or not because their money, their ATM card is not going to work. Their credit card's not going to work. So you need to be prepared for this now. And if, if they decide to let us choose what money is, then, hey, I'm in favor of it, but I just don't see it happening as a practical matter. I hope it does, though. I agree with you. Competing currencies, let the consumer, let the people decide what they want to be the money supply. Well, yeah, I think we're in agreement on that point. Um, certainly, I think you're right. It is always the question of transition. But uh, but I wonder what, what place or what role uh, some sort of government decree would have in that if, uh, for example, with Bitcoin, that's, that's to me, something that is appealing uh, simply because it completely and utterly circumvents all, all types of uh, government regulation. It's this thing that is uh, a, a digital abstract concept, but it is open source so that anyone can see how Bitcoins are created and and exactly how the uh, the growth curve of the currency is going to go, so exactly how many are in circulation at any time and how many are predicted to be in circulation in the future. And uh, it's it's something that's, uh, that's perfectly open and transparent in that way, and it involves absolutely not only no government control, but no control of any single individual. It's just an algorithm, really. And, uh, and I think that's, to me, is the exciting part of something like Bitcoin. The unexciting part is the fact that it basically uh, shunts us off into a digital system where absolutely every transaction can be theoretically traced and tracked. And I understand there are different technologies for trying to remain anonymous on the internet, but I think that's uh, more of a pipe dream than anything. Yeah, well, it's getting to be a pipe dream. And you know, governments are trying now to turn this whole thing into the cashless society so they can track everything. And, you know, this thing is going to be fought out over a period of years, and maybe if there's a collapse, it'll have to be implemented rather quickly. But, you know, it just people nowadays have so much confidence in government, at least in the United States, in North America, and in Europe, and wrongfully so. The government has done absolutely nothing to gain our confidence. And you're right, when it comes to money, even less so than other things. So, so evolving this worldwide currency that's consensual in nature, it's going to be a messy affair, but perhaps in the final analysis that's the only way that it can be done where it's it's going to be transparent and have uh, be like a Byzantine currency that lasts for 800 years because certainly the system we have now we'd be lucky to see it last another 8 years, let alone 800. 
Unfortunately so. I mean, it's it's difficult to even imagine or conceive being able to live in times where things would remain in that type of economic stasis for eight centuries. I mean, as you say, even a few years would be uh, would be pretty unthinkable the way things are collapsing right now. And of course, we have what's going on in, uh, in Europe as well, which is uh, hopefully will start to discredit the idea of regional currencies and, and hopefully discredit that idea of a world currency before it can ever even get off the ground. But who knows, it might just plunge us deeper into that. Well, let's take one more break, and we'll come back after this to wrap things up. Once again, talking to Carrie Lutz of the Financial Survival Network at FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Here we are on Corbett Report Radio, and we are in the final minutes of tonight's broadcast. Once again, talking to Carrie Lutz of the Financial Survival Network. So, uh, Carrie, let's, uh, let's talk about the Financial Survival Network at FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com. When people go there, what kinds of uh, information and resources can they access? Well, first and foremost, uh, I have a radio show, do a number of interviews. We put out anywhere from, uh, from 15 to 25 interviews per week with luminaries, financial luminaries, um, such as uh, James Turk, Peter Schiff. Um, Mark Faber and Jim Rogers. And we get these people on because my feeling is, James, they listen to me, they listen to you. And if they believe us, great. If they don't, then they don't. But the more voices you can throw at people, giving them basically different aspects of what's coming at them, the potential for a currency collapse, the potential that everything they think they know and they expect their normal life could change violently on a dime, some people will get the message and some people will wake up and they'll act. And the information that we provide, we're also aggregating content from many, many sources. I think we post your podcasts on there quite often too. And we want people to know that there's so much information out there they shouldn't be getting a daily newspaper. I mean, I, I stopped my, all of my newspaper magazine subscriptions years ago because what was the point? I could find articles from hundreds of different publications every day, and I probably read at least 100 to 150 articles. And what do I need a newspaper for that gives me that publisher's slant, whether I agree with them or not. I want to get info from as many sources as possible, and that's what Financial Survival Network does. As we say, people sign up, they get the newsletter, they get a financial survival toolkit, and they can start thinking about a plan because that's the most important thing, James, is having your personal financial survival plan, your personal physical survival plan, and your family and community survival plan. So if it does hit the fan, you might your plan might not survive the first five seconds of battle, but at least you'll have a plan. And that puts you ahead of probably 99.5% of everybody else who just lives day-to-day hoping for the best and are totally unprepared. So that's, that's really what FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com is all about. You'll be ahead of almost everyone except the National Geographic Extreme Preppers, I guess. Well, tell, tell, tell people about the toolkit and uh, what, what you offer there. Well, the toolkit, you know, you've got uh, places you can find uh, reputable sources that we've uncovered to buy metals from at good prices. 
you know, to me, the most important thing is when you send them your money and you're going to have to send anybody, unless you walk into a coin store, you're going to have to send them money, wire, check, whatever, to know that they're going to ship it to you. That is the most important thing. And then there's places where, you know, you can get food and get information and things that you need to plan for. And once you've got all that, then, like I said, and like you said, the only ones who've got who are ahead of you are the are the real preppers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, excellent. Well, on that note, we're uh, fresh out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. Carrie Lutz, FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us tonight. Hey, and thank you, James. You're doing incredible work there. Everybody needs to wake up and smell the coffee. Couldn't agree more. All right, on that note, we'll leave it there. So thank you all out there for listening. Once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I'm looking forward to talking to you all again 23 hours from now. So until tomorrow night, take care and thanks for listening. 